Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 145. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, it is my pleasure to be joined by someone who can, I think, help us unravel a lot of the common questions we have around coaching and teaching in the sport. I've got Mr. Doug Lamov. Doug, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me on. I'm so glad to have you on. You're a, a very, very frequently requested guest to specifically the book that you did, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. And I'd love to maybe dig into that a little bit more, but perhaps for the listeners who aren't familiar with you at this point in time. Definitely not on for my knowledge of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, so. <laughs> well, let me ask then, maybe as an introduction, would you mind just giving everyone a quick primer so that they know who you are? Sure. I am an educator by trade. I used to be the principal of a teacher and then a principal of a school and set out to run a network of schools, particularly in communities of need in the, in the East Coast. And in the course of that, started writing books about teaching and uh, how to help teachers be more successful in the classroom. I also played soccer in college, have three kids. They play sports. I got very interested in coaching as a form of teaching and did some consulting for sports federations and sports franchises. And over time, the questions that they asked me most of which the ones, most of the ones that I couldn't answer led to my trying to write this book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, which is taking the things that I knew from studying teachers and applying them and adapting them to coaching settings. Beautiful. And this is something that I think we are really interested in learning about in our sport here. I'll give you a bit of context because I know that jiu-jitsu is not your background. The sport of Brazilian jiu-jitsu is an offshoot of judo, and it's a relatively new one in the grand scheme of martial arts. It's maybe just over a hundred years old, which sounds like a long time. But if you compare it to the other martial arts, some of which go back thousands of years, it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a baby compared to that. And it really became in vogue when the UFC happened, because that was kind of the proving ground for which of these martial arts have merit in a real fight. And Brazilian jiu-jitsu was something that people had prior not really heard of. And then after watching the UFC, it became pretty clear that, OK, this there's something to this sport. So it went from being completely unheard of to around the 90s, suddenly becoming this thing that suddenly everyone wanted to train. And the thing about jiu-jitsu is it is a sport where the way it's always been done is you just show up and train. So you just get people to go in there and they just go in, they spar. The nice thing about jujitsu is because there's no strikes, you can usually spar at really high intensity without worrying about killing the other person. <laughs> so the, the conventional way that people teach jujitsu is kind of pressure cooker. You just go in there and you just make everyone spar. And the idea is that eventually they'll get good. And that 
sort of works. It has worked before, but of course, it's also extraordinarily limited in terms of its ability to turn out top talent and also in terms of how long it takes to do this because it could be more efficient. So something that has really been a big movement in the last five or 10 years has been taking best practices from other sports, particularly the right way to coach people and trying to bring them into the sport of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And that's what I'd love to maybe pick your brain on. Because one of the things about jiu-jitsu that is very unique is it is a one-on-one sport. You know, it's not a team sport. You're not going in there with five other people on your squad. It is just you versus another person. And I'd love to maybe dig into this in terms of what your thoughts are on this matter, what maybe some best practices are. If you're as a coach, you're trying to work with students and you're trying to actually put together a plan and get them to be productive and to learn productively on the mats. Yeah, sure. It's fascinating. I'll do I'll do my best. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. One thing that jumps out at me right away is there's a, there's a real analogy in the game of, of soccer, which is people often say, I think what you're describing when you describe the sort of culture of sparring, which is people say the game is the best teacher. Yes. And they look at elite elite soccer players, football players, they come out of, you know, place often they come out of the favelas of Brazil, interestingly. And when you look at how many of them learned they're sort of positive outliers they played a lot of pickup soccer they played a lot of unstructured soccer and so people i think romanticize that and <laughs> and say oh well that that must be the way to learn and there's certainly benefits to unstructured play but i think that that's actually i mean to talk about it a significant amount in the book that i don't think that's the optimal way to teach everybody and the fact that a few people are successful as a result of it does not suggest that it's the best way to develop everybody so at least one analogy already. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, of course, we're talking about Brazil in both cases. I mean, (laughs) two sports that Brazil is is very much known for, of course, soccer traditionally, but Brazilian jiu-jitsu is also becoming another big thing that Brazil is being known for. And the culture is very much the same. Just go there and train and just get it out of your system. And the idea is that pressure creates diamonds. I would ask you, what are what are some of the best practices as a coach to break that that stallion? You know, if you want to break that mindset, if you're someone who has never, never actually had any coaching experience before, which I think is the vast majority Mm -hmm. of jujitsu instructors, if you've never actually formally been taught how to coach, so you're going from zero to one here, you've just been winging it up until this time. What are some of the things that a coach should put in practice that are actually backed by science and that are actually known to work at high levels. Yeah. And maybe I'll just touch on a couple of themes and then we can double click on any of these that you, that you want to go deeper on. I think the first thing is, you know, almost every coach uses feedback and I would just define feedback as guidance that you give an athlete in response to their, to performance, right? If I explain to you something at the outset before you've done something, here's what your hand placement should be like. I'm kind of teaching you. But if I watch you compete and I say, mm, pause for a second, or in that in that match, you struggled because your hand placement was this, and I want you to think about doing this with your hand placement, that's that's feedback. It's reaction in reaction to performance. And I think feedback is interesting because it's probably the single most common form of interaction between coach and athlete. And that's has some upsides and some downsides. But you know, the the fact that it's so frequent, that we do it so frequently, means that we tend to take it for granted and maybe not examine it as much as we could. But the upside is that if I can think more intentionally about it, I can, you know, I can actually, I think, make a dramatic change in an athlete and in many ways, I think, earn the buy-in and, and build a stronger relationship with an athlete. Because one of the things that athletes want to know is, can you make me successful as a coach? 
And so I'll, I'll just offer a couple quick thoughts about, about feedback. And I think one of the most important ones is encapsulated in a phrase that a rugby coach said to me in New Zealand, which he said, he said, if we, if you chase five rabbits, you catch none, which is, I think in an effort to accelerate learning, when we give players, when we give athletes feedback, we often tell them lots and lots of things at once. We tell them to do five things at once, right? Here's two things I want you to think of with your hand placement. Oh, and while you're at it, your feet should be like this and crouch lower and set your hips and make sure or make, or don't set your hips, you know, <laughs> and your eyes should be looking here, go, right? So then uh, the athlete tries it again. And one of the things we know about the brain is, that, you know, working memory is incredibly powerful. Working memory would be defined as any thinking that you're conscious of doing, but it's also extremely limited. And I can't keep track of five things at once. And so the most, the best case scenario is your athlete will choose one of those things and focus on it, but you actually won't know which one he or she focuses on. And so you won't know how to give them feedback on whether they were successful. And you're likely to give the same five pieces of feedback again later. But a maybe less successful outcome from that would be like working memory is also the site at which we process perception. So a good example of this is I was driving home from work the other day. And my wife called me on the phone and she said, I'm going to make a lasagna tonight. Can you pick up some stuff at the store? Sure, hon. Happy to. Okay. So grab some noodles, not the fast baked noodles, but the long baked noodles. Okay. Got that. And two types of cheese, Parmesan and ricotta. Great. And two types of meat and some spinach. And at this point, first of all, my working memory is overloaded. It's more than I can keep in conscious thought. And so I'm likely to forget some of these things, which is, you know, just you chase five rabbits, you catch none. And so as I told my wife later, the reason I forgot is not because I'm a husband, but, but because I'm human. She didn't buy it. Anyway, uh, but the other thing that's likely to happen is that because my working memory is full, I'm trying to remember this list of things I'm supposed to get at the store. I am now several times more likely to have an accident driving my car because my working memory is full. It's a site of perception and I'm more likely to miss misjudge the rate of approach of an oncoming vehicle. And so when we overload athletes with feedback, one of the other outcomes is that performance degrades or is likely to degrade because perception of, of their opponent is likely to degrade. So I think one of the simplest things to do with feedback is to think about one or two things at a time, give the athlete the opportunity to try it, give them feedback on how they're doing it, trying it. Yes, that's better, much better hand placement or no, a little lower still. And then they can kind of know how they're doing it at that process. So uh, if you chase five rabbits, you catch none. It's just a great phrase. That really is a great phrase. Yeah, I love that. And maybe I'll just I'll just throw out a couple of other thoughts that we can talk about if you want to. I think one of the other most overlooked things in, in learning, not just coaching, is the powerful role of forgetting. If you think about it, you have forgotten almost everything you've learned in your <laughs> in your life. If you doubt me, have children wait 15 years and try to help them with their history homework. <laughs> but I think that we underestimate the importance of this in coaching settings. We're fooled by performance and performance is what an athlete is able to do while we're coaching them or while they're in the midst of, of experiencing something. So I tell an athlete to get their weight lower when they approach another athlete and they do it successfully three or four times. And I think, wow, they've got it. And I expect it to show up in competition on Saturday. But in fact, what happens when people learn something is as soon as they stop learning, as soon as they walk out of the room, they start forgetting. And forgetting is a ruthless and tireless opponent. And the next day, they will have forgotten a significant proportion of, proportion of what they've learned. You know, by three or four days later, by the time competition comes around, they will have forgotten quite likely most of it. So I get this false signal at the end of training, which is I think my athlete knows something, but in fact, that's performance and learning is performance that is encoded in long-term memory and to get things into long-term memory so that they show up consistently. So I, I don't, so I don't forget. 
I have to engage in retrieval practice, which is bringing things that I've started to learn back into working memory after I've started to forget them. And I think what this tells us is that there's almost nothing that an athlete can learn sufficiently to be able to use it in competition in a single training session. We can be fooled. We can think they've learned something, but they're likely to forget the great majority of it unless we come back to it a day later and then come back to it three days later. And when people struggle to remember it and reapply it again, then it's the struggle of remembering it is what encodes it in long-term memory. And so I think this is just a constant oversight in certainly in classrooms and in a lot of athletic settings, which is I see my athlete able to do something and I think they have learned it and they haven't learned it. They've only, they're only able to perform it. And performance is not learning. So maybe there's a couple of things that we could talk about. Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to, to kick this off. So you touch on two problems that I can tell you with absolute certainty are, are rampant <laughs> in the sport of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. One of the things that happens in jiu-jitsu a lot of the time, and this is starting to change, but historically there have not been a lot of people who get into this to be professional coaches. Mm-hmm. Normally what happens is you'll get someone who in their day was a, an ace competitor and then you know they get out of their competitive prime and they decide, okay, I got to find a way to pay the bills somehow. So I'm going to open a school and they've never been taught coaching a day in their life. They just they were really good at this activity. And now they're trying to teach the next generation without any guidance as to how they should do that. So they basically just cookie cutter everything that worked for them and they just recite off endless instructions. And you very much see a a curse of knowledge when it comes to Brazilian jiu jitsu, where you'll have these black belts because in in jiu jitsu, it takes usually around 10 to 12 years to get a black belt is much longer than a lot of other martial arts. So the guy at the front of the room or the girl at the front of the room is so experienced at this martial art that they have completely lost track of what it was like to be a new person. And they will just completely blow out that person's cognitive memory with just rampant details, all of which are important but that you just can't possibly all process at the same time. So a standard jujitsu class in terms of the, the old school way that I generally advocate you don't do, but most gyms probably still do. Normally, the way that a class works is you come in and the instructor will teach you three different moves every class. The problem is that a single move usually means somewhere between 10 to 20 discrete steps that you have to know to actually do it. And you can never do a move against a a resisting opponent. It's one thing to just sit there and do it on someone in practice when they're letting you. But as soon as the other person starts giving you real resistance, none of that stuff works anymore. So the number of variables for any single move that you have to do is, is, is unfathomable. And then you're trying to teach people three completely new things every day. They got maybe three to five minutes to practice each one and then you move on. And instructors are always shocked that nobody retains anything. I mean, the, yeah. the example you brought up of the instructor thinks everyone's got it, but they actually don't. That is jujitsu 101, man. And I, it's funny. I just saw a friend of mine post a joke about this on Instagram and about how the instructor always shows a thing and says, OK, does everyone have it? And everyone says, yeah, I got it. And then the coach says, OK, go do it. And then yeah. all of the students say, I don't got it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, it's it's very, very common for that to happen. And I, I think that the the main thing that you've brought up here is that you can't overwhelm people's cognitive memory. You kind of have to spoon feed them the thing that they're ready for. Like I, if there's 10 things I have to teach someone, I would rather teach them one of those things and deliberately omit the other nine, hoping that that, that one thing will at least stick because I can come back to the other nine a week or two later, right? I would rather yeah. that then try to teach a new person all 10 things at once and just have them all fall out of their memory. I totally agree with that. 
And but there's a tiny silver lining that I, just, uh, that I want to point out, which is one of the things that we know about building memory is the power of what, you, what some people call interleaved practice, which is when you shift the topic that you're focusing on with athletes, you essentially are simulating in some ways the passage of time. And what I mean by that is one of the things that you need to drive something into long-term memory is to come back to something after you've forgotten it. So you could like you there. Your jiu-jitsu teacher teaches you a new move on Tuesday. Cognitive science would say, you know, spend 10 minutes on Tuesday, get it down, come back to maybe go do something else for 15 minutes, come back and try it again. But actually doing something else for 15 minutes distracts you, causes you to forget what you were working on before. And then so coming back to it is actually harder. Mm -hmm. And your performance of it in the moment will not be as good as if you didn't get distracted, if you didn't go into this other topic and go back to it but your memory of it will be stronger. So you get this, again, the sort of false signal, which is the practice is messier, but the outcome is more successful. Um, and, uh, and, uh, like, and, and then to really master the move, you would want to come back to it two days later and four days later and eight days later. But the idea of interleave practice, which is inserting another topic and then coming back to the original one actually can accelerate learning. And so like a, a typical example of how this might play out in another sport is a lot of baseball teams used to do a lot of what we call blocked practice, which is they would, batters would hit 50 curveballs in a row to try and learn to hit a curveball. But what it turns out, if you introduce some interleaving, which is you hit curveballs until you understand the mechanics of hitting a curveball. And there you're sort of learning to get, out, you know, just sort of like basic conception of what the move is. But then when I want to start building memory, the ability to transfer it to performance, it's better to, to use some interleaving. So I might hit a curveball and then hit a slider and then a fastball and then a changeup. And then when the next curveball comes back to me, I'm not expecting it. I have to recall, my body has to recall the things that I need to do to hit a curveball. And that actually, again, that deliberate difficulty, the struggle of it will make me encode it better. So I agree with you absolutely on principle, which is fewer things better. Do things, do things to do things to mastery. Don't take athletes' words when they say, when you say, do you get it? Do you understand? The answer will always be less, be yes. And the answer will always be wrong. But you can also, if you did say two or three things in the course of a session, you could actually potentially accelerate your rate by shifting back and forth among them strategically and saying, let's do this move. Now let's go, let's try another move. Now let's come back to this one. They'll struggle to remember it a little bit. It won't be as fresh in their memory. It will, it will build more long-term conception of what they're trying to do. So interestingly here, what you're talking about is just generally that the more work you make someone go through to retrieve something from their memory, the stronger that connection is going to be. As long as they're successful at retrieving it. Because <laughs> I think yeah. look, one way that people could misinterpret this would be a recipe for the for ultimate complexity. And I think that this, this recipe that we're talking about works when people are successful. So if you make it so hard that people don't do it well, don't do it correctly, then then things fall apart. So uh, yes, I agree with you. I agree with your point, but small caveat too. <laughs> okay. So just to, to clarify, you don't want to make things so complicated that people's cognitive memory just completely blows out and then they're not able to retain anything, but you want to at least ha watch them go through the process of learning and then force them to come back to those things at a later period so that they have to work to retrieve those from memory. And then, like you said, you want to do spaced repetition over time so that you continuously revisit that in the future with wider and wider intervals. Is that what you're saying? Perfectly put. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And what's funny is in a lot of ways, I mean, I remember when I first heard of this concept, it's completely counterintuitive when you think about it. Yeah. If you were to take someone who 
doesn't know this stuff and you were to ask them to put together a lesson plan, what they often do, at least in the jujitsu sense, is they will organize things by theme. So they'll say, for example, you know what? The takedowns are important. This month is going to be takedown month. We're going to do nothing but takedowns. And so people will drill the same thing or variants of the thing over and over again for a month. And then they'll park that and then they won't come back to it for like a year. And that's a very common way that people structure their classes. And that's unfortunate because they're not interleaving when they do that. And they're also not adding in spaced repetition. I've seen very few instructors who include spaced repetition. Usually they have a theme window where for, you know, a week or a month or so, they got a thing they want to show and then they won't come back to that for like a year sometimes. And that's unfortunate because that means that it doesn't stick. You don't make your students work to retain the knowledge and then you never revisit it to strengthen those connections later. Yeah, maybe I have two practical suggestions to add to your insight because I think you're spot on there. One is if I wanted to work on takedowns, I might, I mean, I like the idea of unit planning, which is like, we're going to work on this for a steady period of time because I think if, if all you do is do takedowns for a day, it's just hard to get to the level of depth and focus that you need. But I might come, I might do a unit in which I do takedowns and several other things, right? So then my unit is for the next six weeks, at the end of the next six weeks, we're going to crush takedowns and X and Y and, and Z other thing that's, that's really important. And so now I'm kind of building in the idea of I'm going to interleave and I'm going to move back and forth among them to sort of do this, to, to be more proficient with my memory, for, with the memory formation I'm fostering in athletes. And the second thing that I think coaches might think about doing is after you've taught something and you think that athletes understand it, write it down in a list called a puncture list or a retrieval list. And Every so often in the middle of a session, you're working on takedowns, say, pause, great, glance down at your retrieval list. Here's something we did two weeks ago. Here's something we did three days ago. Here's something we did four weeks ago. Let's try it again really quickly. Or like right before, you know, we're about to do a water break. Before we take a water break really quickly, we're going to do this. And so now I just have a systematic way. I have this list that causes me to ask athletes to retrieve things that they've appeared to master in the in the past so that I can make sure that they retain mastery of it. So they're always building mastery of it so that I'm getting it into long-term memory. And I could even like just jot down the date on which I retrieve these things so that I can make sure that I'm, you know, as you pointed out, continuing to bring things, bring things back into working memory with slightly longer delays each time I do it. I have a colleague who works with an NBA franchise. And the first thing they did after sort of talking about this, this idea was they on the whiteboard in their office, they just put down, they started to write down the, the concepts that they mastered at every training session. And they would just grab two or three as they walked out to, to practice. And, you know, right before water break, they'd ask guys to, you know, rerun pistol, you know, which is like the name of one of their plays, right? To make sure that they were constantly thinking about long-term memory. Because for athletes to use something at speed <laughs> in the midst of performance, where we so often have to do things not only well, but quickly, long-term memory is necessary to performance. Let me ask you one other knock on question here, which is how does this practice of getting your students to to train things and remember them? How does that change when you introduce the fact that most of these techniques don't work in a bubble? You know, a lot of the time it's, it's complicated enough to just get people to remember the individual steps to a particular technique. But the reality is in a, when you're sparring with someone, there is so much variability in terms of what your opponent can do. And so a lot of the time, the move you want to do might be very situationally dependent. You know, maybe you spend all this time training a technique that works when the guy 
is like kneeling down on the ground, but what if he just stands up? This is a challenge that often comes up, especially for beginners in jujitsu, which is that we teach them, okay, here's the steps to do what you want to do, but the context matters and you can't always control the behavior of your opponent. So a challenge that people often have is just rote drilling where you just follow the instructions. It fails to take into account the nuance of the of the energy that your opponent can give you. And I just wonder, how do you, because I know jujitsu isn't unique in this sense. This is something that any sport where you're competing against another human being is going to have this factor. How do you coach and teach people to do things and take into account the variability of a human opponent. Yeah, it's so important. And one thing I just want to benchmark here that we should come back to is, is one of the key things that's implicit in the process that you're describing, which is you can know how to do the move, but the first thing you have to do is perceive the, perceive the need to do the move or the opportunity mm-hmm. to do the move, that it all starts with perception. And so any good coaching setting has to, you know, if I'm not coaching athletes' perception and coaching their eyes, I'm not going to put them in a, in a position to successfully make decisions during performance. So we should come back to the idea that one of the things I would have to do would be to think about perception. But I think that I could, I could set up maybe a progression of different settings between straight rote drill where I'm practicing against an imaginary opponent or I'm, I'm practicing against an opponent who's been designed to be <laughs> designed to be taken down in the most, in the yeah. easiest way. And, and like, and just a straight out sparring. I don't know if this analogy works, but in soccer and rugby, coaches talk a lot about constraints, which is, you know, I set rules to cause certain events to happen more frequently. So I might have two athletes sparring, but I might restrict one of them in the types of things that they are able to do so that they're more likely to be directly in front of an athlete or to not be able to go low, do many moves that involve, you know, crouching low. And so they're always standing up and that increases the likelihood that I have the opportunity to use moves where someone is standing up. Now, again, it's not entirely realistic because part of the challenge of performance is is having to implement in a setting where athletes could go low, but I think I'm sort of working towards a more variable, a more variable setting, but not completely like in other words, I'm, I'm trying to phase in elements of, of reality in particular elements of perception, which is, you know, when do I see the moment to do this move? I think one of the other things that I could do is I could think about the starting points. So let's say I, every once in a while, I'll pause my athletes. I, I might always start in a certain setting. You know, we're always going to start in X position and then you'll have to go from there. And that again kind of sets me up to have imperfect, but more frequent repetition of something that I'm trying to focus on, the, you know, the one move that's in my athlete's working memory. Mm-hmm. I guess those are a couple things that I would be, that I would be thinking about. But I think the reason why athletes struggle for the most part to translate, to transfer what they learn in ungame-like settings or (laughs) unmatched-like settings into matches and is because perception is, you know, is the most important thing. And so often we, you know, you, you use the phrase, the curse of knowledge before, and I think that it's a really important phrase for coaches and experts to be aware of. And one of the most important ways that knowledge plays out is in perception. My perception of the world is influenced by my knowledge and my expectations. And so when I know more, when I'm more expert, I see the match very differently. Oh, there's very obviously to me an opportunity for a takedown that my novice athlete did not see. And so I could say, you had the opportunity to do a takedown there because I perceive that to be a decision-making failure. She chose not to. But in fact, what happened was she never really perceived the cue that told her that it was an opportunity. And so I think one of the keys is just to, to 
coach athletes' eyes constantly. And lots of times when we ask an athlete, what should you do or what should you have done? A better question would be, what do you see? What's a cue that would tell you to do something in a, let's, you, you know, you're sparring with someone. They do something and that tells you that you might make them do a takedown or something like that. Just t- tell me a typical cue. In jiu-jitsu and in a lot of combat arts, especially in jiu-jitsu, though, one of the keys is where are they putting their body weight? Beautiful. A big part of what you're trying to do in jiu-jitsu is you want someone to either be leaning in a certain direction or you want them to be like crisscrossing and pointing their feet or their hands in, in a certain direction. Or maybe you want to be able to pull something free from the rest of their body. So if you can get like a good solid grip on their arm, that opens up the ability to do a lot of things. And therefore, your opponent will try to make sure you don't get that good solid grip on their arm and they'll yeah. try to make sure that they're always balanced properly. So very a big part of jujitsu is a game of just who's got balance yeah. and are you leaving any part of your body dangling that can be exploited? So I might say to an athlete something like she's unbalanced, you know, take her down. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, in some ways, a more useful question might be to pause and have the opponent recreate the position that she was in and say, what do you see? Mm-hmm. Because there are two, I think there are two sort of general categories here. One is that the athlete does not perceive the cue and says something else true but random. You know, she's in exposition. Her arm is off to the side, which is maybe true, but not the most important thing that she should notice at that point. In which case, you might say something like what you said to me, which is like where her weight is, is very important. Look at her weight. How is she, is she balanced? No, she's not. And so when she's not balanced, what, you know, what are you going to try? What, what does that tell us you should try and do in response? So that I'm teaching the athletes to read the cues to tell them to use their moves. And the other possibility is that she actually identifies the visual cue correctly. I say, what do you see? And she says she's off balance. And then I'd say something like, and so I could do X or I could do Y. Yes. And so now I'm sort of building, I think, what a, what a cognitive scientist would call perception action linkage, which is, I'm trying to get athletes to link something they see to something that they do automatically and quickly when they see it. And so in one case, they don't perceive the perceptive cue at all. And so I need to help them to see the perceptive cue. And in the other case, I'm trying to make, help them make a linkage between the cue and the action that they know. And those are very, those are very different. So part, you know, part of what I think this question, what do you see reveals is which, which of those two cases am I in? Mm-hmm. And this actually touches on, I, I think, something that instructors often do incorrectly, which is they are so focused on rote instruction, put your hand here, tuck your chin, put your leg here, that they often don't bother to address the higher level, which is why are you doing these things? Why? What do you see that would lead you to do this kind of movement? That's often more important than being able to just follow instructions and do the move exactly as your instructor taught you. There's a problem that I often see in jujitsu where the instruction is very prescriptive about here's where all of the body parts go, but what they don't really do is describe the situation where you would actually want to do that and how to read the cue that it's time to do this thing. Yeah, that's right. And so I think good feedback probably progresses from as an athlete progresses from being a novice to an, to more expert. I think one of the, uh, just another sort of rarely understood thing in, in learning is that novices and experts learn differently. Is it acceptable with a, an expert, with an athlete who's a novice, either a novice to jujitsu or a novice at a certain move they've never tried it before to be very prescriptive? Put your hand here. Your weight should be like this. Uh, no, your grip should be like that. Absolutely. But as learners progress towards expertise, now I want to fade some of my direct guidance and have them do more of the sort of analytical thinking. And so here I might want to replace 
directive feedback with questioning. Where should your hand be? What should it look like? How do you know that? Right. Because the, you know, it's a decision-making endeavor. And in the end, I have to, I have to coach someone who has the capacity to make decisions. And to do that, I have to be willing to have conversations with them about why and how, and make sure that they're able to, you know, that, that those answers are generated from them and not from me. Makes sense. I, I have a question for you, and this is me being ignorant of how other sports work, but one of the things about Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like I mentioned earlier, is it's very common that most coaches that you'll find in Brazilian jiu-jitsu are former or retired competitors or, or sometimes even still mm -hmm. active competitors. So basically there is this athlete's journey in jiu-jitsu where after your competitive prime or, or even just when you get old enough that you need the money, <laughs> you start the process of becoming a coach. There's no formal training to do that, but just either one day you retire and you go into this, or maybe there's a transition where you're doing both at the same time. This is very common where a lot of competitors will open their own gym. So Simon Simultaneously, they are teaching and running a gym while also competing at the same time. And I'd love to know if this is common in other sports, because it seems to me like a lot of the best coaches actually aren't athletes themselves. Whereas in jujitsu, sometimes people disparage coaches who don't have that competitive experience. They'll say, oh, well, why would I listen to this guy? He's not a world champion. But it seems to me, and like in a lot of other sports, sometimes the best coaches actually are not athletes themselves. And I'd love to dig into that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're onto something. I mean, it, yes, I think it's common across most sports that one of the most common criteria for being a coach is having been a highly proficient athlete yourself. And the presumption is the better the athlete, the better the coach. And I think that's probably, there is probably some correlation between, <laughs> between skill as an athlete and being a coach, though I'm not sure having to be absolutely elite is necessary, but certainly like, you know, you need a certain amount of knowledge and at some levels credibility. But I also agree with you that in many cases, people who are outstanding at a sport are outliers in a way, because if it the more likely it comes naturally to you, the less likely you are to understand the struggle of people for whom it comes less naturally and it's less intuitive. And so much of coaching and teaching is often careful observation of what is it exactly that I, that I did and, and how do I explain that to someone else for whom it isn't intuitive how my weight should be balanced. And so I do think that there is a trend there and that oftentimes it is a false assumption that the best athletes are necessarily the best teachers, but there is definitely a trend in many sports to make the presumption that the better the athlete, the better the teacher. And so the good news is I think that creates an incredible opportunity for people, for people who are aware of this, that, you know, if I'm attentive to my coaching, I can find people who weren't stars themselves, who can be stars at the game of making people better at something. And they're out there, they're waiting to be, they're waiting to be, to be asked and developed and given the opportunity to change athletes' lives. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I love what you're bringing up here. I think that often it, people who are really just innately good at something, they have trouble relating to people who aren't. Uh, a lot of the time, someone will be a, a super athlete and maybe everything just came to them intuitively. They succeeded at the highest levels. They open a gym and now they wind up in a room full of people who don't have that, that natural gift or just that natural luck where they understand something. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. And you know, just to go back to the phrase, the more expert you are at something, the more prone you are to what you call the curse of knowledge, which is very real. There's actually a lot of, a lot of writing about this. One of the other ways that this plays out is in vocabulary. You know, vocabulary is one of the most 
fundamental ways that we communicate knowledge. And, you know, I see this all the time in a soccer setting. Uh, I was watching a soccer tournament among a group of girls a couple of weeks ago, and one of the outside back was dramatically out of position. And the coach from the sideline is yelling, stay connected, stay connected. Mm-hmm. And just from watching, I am willing to bet any possession that I have that, that the outside back had no idea what the <laughs> coach meant by stay connected, right? But when you're an athlete, when you're an expert and you've spent your life, it's so intuitive to you that what it means to stay connected as an outside back that you don't even think that she might have no idea what you mean by this term. And so there's there are all these sort of terms which to the coach are technical advice, support, like support, stay connected, get in space that are in fact riddles <laughs> to athletes. And I just think you're, you know, you're in some ways less likely to know that you're the term you express, the vocabulary you use as a riddle to athletes when you're, when it's more intuitive to you, when you've been more successful, when you're an expert, when you've grown up somehow always understanding intuitively what we mean by space and what we mean by staying connected. And so, yeah, again, I just think the curse of knowledge is vocabulary and terminology is another, is another place where the curse of knowledge shows up. Well, let me ask a, a question here that is related to this, which is, and this ties into something that I see a lot where often the very competitive coach will only really truly care about their very competitive students. But that's just not the reality of what a, a classroom looks like a lot of the time. You might have one person who's a super athlete and then 29 people who are just regular Joes or Janes, right? Yeah. And I would ask you, to what extent does the situation change or how should the coach adapt to those people who just they don't they don't appear that they will be elite performers. They're just there to do it for fun or to do it for their own purposes. How does a coach balance that? And what what is the right thing for them to do in this situation? Of course, if you're a competitive coach, you want to create champions. And I understand that it's got to be frustrating to a coach if they feel that 99 percent of their students aren't ever good enough to achieve that. But I mean, if you want to be a successful coach, you can't just focus on the people who are good and ignore the rest. So I'd, I'd love to know your philosophy on how a coach works with people who are just regular mortals like me, you know, versus a super athlete. I think it's right. I mean, first of all, I think it's a constant challenge. And like, you know, to some degree, consciousness is curative, which is, of course, we're drawn to the people who we give them a bit of advice about hand placement and they instantly use it and, and make some beautiful, inspiring move. And that makes us feel good as coaches. I think one of the fundamental differences between coaching and teaching in the classroom sense, at least, is that it, it's kind of become clearly accepted in the last 25 years among classroom teachers that their job is to teach everybody and that just teaching the top of the class, you know, is not acceptable. And and interestingly, that wasn't always true. Like that, you know, in my, in maybe in my generation or my parents' generation, a teacher could stand in front of a classroom with a straight face and say, some of you just aren't very good at math and, you know, and good luck to you. Or, you know, if you're not willing to work hard for math, it's not my problem. And I just don't think that teachers conceive of their jobs that way. But I think that for that slope is a little bit more slippery among coaches. You know, ego comes into it a little bit. We want to be the successful coach of the great athlete. And as successful athletes ourselves, often we are drawn to the people who are good, who we can, we can see ourselves making them better. And so I think, I think we just have to be constantly aware of this. Our job is to be teachers and teachers of everybody. But if it helps, I think one way to think about it is to see. And by the way, I think like this is, this is throughout all sports, you know, in the soccer community in particular. You know, what is the most important age group in an athlete's development? I would, you know, all age groups are important, but I would say like 10 to 12 are probably the most important ages. 
what are the high status ages to coaches to coach 17 and 18 in other words the best coaches are routinely you know work with players because they're better and higher status but actually they're not teaching in the place where teaching has the most profound influence mm -hmm. but i think one of the things that, that is, is interesting about that is that you know coaching someone who is less proficient is an opportunity to learn what learning looks like and how it works to have to explain to someone, you know, one athlete intuitively understands a takedown and for another athlete, you have to explain methodically how to do it. It causes you to understand more deeply. One, what the takedown is, what the component parts are, what the barriers to understanding are. And that will, you know, that will make you better, not only with the weaker athlete, but with the better, with all of your athletes. And so, you know, in addition to just, I think like the obligation to coach everyone. And I, and I think, you know, just it, being aware of it will help most people be more cognizant of it. Just in terms of thinking about your own development as a craftsperson, as a teacher, the weaker student is the is actually the best teacher of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th this is something that blew my mind when I started teaching. I, for a long time, I just wasn't excited about the prospect of teaching because I was still felt I had so much to learn myself. I thought, oh man, I, last thing I want to do is be pulling my attention off and focusing on other people when I barely know what I'm doing. But the one thing that blew my mind when I started teaching was it makes you better as well. If you teach, it forces you to clarify your thoughts and your knowledge in a way that other people much further down the ladder can understand. And it's actually been very surprising to me how much better I've gotten just by teaching. You mentioned something at the beginning, which is that beginners and experts learn differently. And this is something that I found as someone who's been doing this for a long time. The act of teaching is actually one of my favorite ways to learn myself right now, because I'm going, I have to really clarify what I'm thinking of. I have to really review the habits that I've built over years. And I'm going to have a whole parade of new people asking me a bunch of questions yeah. that honestly, they might wind up poking holes in my knowledge. It's not un yeah. unheard of that someone might ask me a question about why I do something. Thing and I, I have to say either I don't know or when I think about it, I realize actually there's no good reason to do this. <laughs> you know, I, I shouldn't be doing this. It's a habit I picked up five years ago and I just never bothered to stop doing it. So there, there is a serious benefit to, to the expert and to the coach just through teaching. It will make you better as well. Yeah, I had a similar experience, you know, teaching my kids soccer, which is, I think, ironically, teaching them the game caused me to improve, you know, at a relatively old, you know, at a relatively old age, suddenly I found myself, you know, able to do things that I hadn't been able to do. And I think a lot of that came from, you know, the deep level of intentionality and awareness that it took to teach and explain the processes of the game to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One, something that someone told me one time is that they figured that their average student shows up 1.8 times per week. To train. And that sounds the, the tracks. I mean, if you're dealing with a regular gym, most of your students are going to be on the casual end. And so they're kind of coming here to train like a, you know, a regular person would go to the gym to work out. It's not something that is all consuming of their life. It's just something they like to do. And so they do it when they have time. I would wonder what changes in that environment, because if you've got a pro athlete, they're going to be doing this as a full-time job. They're going to be training, you know, six hours a day, somewhere between five to seven days a week. But if you've got a casual Joe or Jane, they might be training, you know, three hours a week tops. And I just wonder if you've got those people who train, say, 1.8 times a week on average, mm -hmm. do you have to have a different approach to them or structure your class differently than if you're dealing with the pros? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the answer has to be yes. You know, this is probably something you deal with more than me. 
do you have any initial thoughts that you, you know, you're kind of wrestling with that I can then riff off? Cause I- not really. This is sort of one of the unsolved problems of jujitsu. When you are teaching a soccer team, generally speaking, you've got everyone's attention for the same block of time for the same amount of time, right? Especially if it's in a, in a school environment, there is a class and all of these people will be there and they'll be there together. And so you know that these people are at the bare minimum when they're getting equivalent coaching time from all right. of you. Whereas in, right. in jujitsu, it's a, it's a gym environment. So usually what uh, happens is you publish a schedule. People come when they want to come. So. They come when they want to come. So you have, so this makes it a challenge because you have no control. I mean, you might have, you might run three classes a day every single day of the week, but you have no control over which classes people will go to or how many they'll go to. And this is a common problem that coaches bring to my attention, which is in an ideal world, you'd make one curriculum. Right. And you'd have everyone's attention for the same amount of time. So if you come to class two, I know that you came to class one. And if you came to class three, I know you came to class two. So I can build off of that knowledge. But in the jujitsu space, you often can't do that because you can't control when people show up. So you might have someone who shows up on Monday and Wednesday on their lunch break. You might have someone who shows up on Friday and Sunday in the evenings. You might have someone who basically is a full timer and they're living at the gym and they're like all the time for every single class. So there's a massive variability in terms of when people are available and how much they train for. So this has been a a problem that I hear a lot of instructors say when they're putting together their curriculums is how do you deal with that kind of variability? And I I don't expect you to have an answer. I know this is maybe a fringe aspect of this sport, but I would love to know if you've got any thoughts on how an instructor can solve that problem. Yeah. And in other words, like you have no, you are totally unable to predict who will be in any class at any time and what, you know, on Wednesday at six, anyone could walk in and you have no idea where they are on the proficiency scale and you're teaching experts and novices at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Most of the time that's the situation. Well, that is a hell of a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I think, I, I guess in that case, like, I mean, I think I have to ask learners to manage more of the process of thinking about what, of what, about what they know and either sorting and, you know, within the class and saying, we're going to be working on takedowns. And if you're at the, if you are are familiar with the following moves, you know, come over to this side of the room. And if you're not familiar with the side of the rooms, come over to this room, to this side of the room, at least so that, you know, when they're sparring or observing someone, they're working with someone relative at their level. That's a good idea. But I also, also, you know, you could also do a little bit of self-selection and say, you know, like, you know, if I wanted to have a, because it's important to have a systematic, sequential approach to learning. Guess if I push that information out beforehand and say, this is what we'll be focusing on. If you're not familiar what we mean by it, here's a video of the move that we'll be doing at the 6 p.m. class. If you're not familiar with this, come at 5 p.m. If you're familiar with it, come at 6 p.m. Of course, people will like, People always creatively know and comply, right? Someone will show up at, <laughs> at six who should be there at five, but at least then I've like encouraged people to make conscientious decisions about whether they want to and are prepared to learn the thing that I want to focus on. And it gives me, I think, at least a mandate to be topical and like, because I, I think what you're describing here is the difference between being able to teach and give feedback, right? If I, if I can't identify a purpose for my lesson, then I can't teach. All I can do is sort of watch various people do something and respond to where they are and, and give them pointers. But to me, to be, to systematically build knowledge and vocabulary and say, this is how we start. This is how, you know, this is the beginning of it. This is the process. And to be able to design things like retrieval practice, which is like, when you come back next week, we'll do this again. 
I think in that case, like you, you really need to be thinking about teaching. And so I would just do everything I could to push learners to be aware and conscious consumers of topic as opposed to time. <laughs> and I can, I can only imagine that must be, it must be incredibly hard. I'm sure that people who are listening are thinking like, well, that's yeah, yeah. But, um, well, one thing I've heard people advocate for, and it's not widespread in jujitsu is something more along the lines of a reverse classroom model where people will kind of self-select what they want to work on and they do the homework on their own and they bring it in Yeah, and their coach's job is basically to help them help guide them through their own self-selected journey that can work. But yeah. it, of course, it's a tremendous burden on the coach to do that because you basically are turning over control of the class to the students. And I yeah. can, I can imagine that it would be especially hard for people who are brand new because they, they don't have the experience yet to even know how to do that. Although I can see that being quite effective for more experienced students in the room. Yeah. It also kind of presumes that sequence and contingency are not that important in learning that, <laughs> that you can tell me what you want to learn. And it doesn't matter whether you have learned a foundational or prerequisite skill that I can just teach it to you. But I often, you know, I think that's, I think that's a relatively romanticized view of of learning, which is like, yes, sometimes it's great for someone to come to me and say, what I want to learn to do is, and what I want to work on is this. But oftentimes, you know, we'd be a lot more successful talking about that if we spent three days talking about, you know, some prerequisite skill. And so I reckon, you know, like it's a, it's a viable model, especially if you have to, I think you're right. It's really challenging on the coach, mm -hmm. but in the ideal world, you know, if I'm, if I value and respect the knowledge of the domain and believe that some, that the ideas in jujitsu build off of one another and, and would ideally be taught in an intentional sequence, it just makes it very hard to, well, the, the presumption that athletes could self-identify, right? I just think this is like an idea you see through, see throughout schools, which is students should say what they're interested in. They should pursue what they're interested in. And the problem is they don't always know mm -hmm. either what's inter what will be interesting or what the, what, an appropriate thing to study is I think there's kind of like a little bit of a romanticism, a romanticism of the knowledge of the learner. And a lot of times the gift is the coach saying, this is what you need to work on. Yeah. You have no idea that this thing exists, but you need to work on it in the same way that like oftentimes in classrooms, people will say kids should choose their own books. They'll be more motivated to learn if you let them choose what they want to read. But you don't know that much at age 14 about, yeah. <laughs> about what books exist in the world. And, and actually the beauty is someone hands you a book that you never thought you would have liked or would speak to you. And it profoundly changes your life. And that I think in many ways is like, that is the highest moment of the teacher. Not to help someone do something that they already know that they need to or want to know how to do, but to show them the thing that they, that will change their lives. Well, I mean, this has been a lot and super helpful to me, Doug. I guess I would ask, is there anything that you have as a closing thought here or anything we didn't touch on that well, you want to take this opportunity to talk about? Sure. I'll talk about one tiny thing, which I was maybe thinking about when you were talking about, you know, like this room full of people working on different things, which is we talked a little bit of the, at the beginning about the challenge of working memory for athletes, which is you can only keep so much in your mind at one time and the challenges of perception and you know, the difficulty of seeing well. And I think these things are underestimated for coaches too, that when you're coaching a room full of people, your working memory is also overloaded. You're trying to track the progress of eight or 10 or 16 athletes at once and respond to them all and remember what they're working on and observe them carefully. As we know, when your working memory is full, it is very difficult to observe accurately. And you can tell someone to work on X and they can write in front of you, do it absolutely wrong and you can, or not even do it and you can fail to see it. And so I think being aware of the challenges of perception for coaches that seeing accurately is one of the most important and difficult skills of coaching. 
And that if I want to do that well, I have to be serious about observation and data collection. And one of the most important things I think to do is have a place to write things down. If I think that I'm going to walk around a room of, you know, eight or 10 or 12 athletes doing, uh, working on their jujitsu and remember what I saw among all those athletes so that I can give them feedback or give them the pointer on the next step, you know, it, it's just unlikely that I'm going to remember the most important things. And so having a place to write down my observations while I'm observing is a really important task and a really mundane one that's really easy to overlook for any coach. Fantastic. Well, Doug, if people want to dig deeper into your work, where can they find you and where can they find uh, the stuff that you've written? Yeah, thanks. My books, The Coach's Guide to Teaching and my sort of more classic teaching book or straightforward teaching book, Teach Like a Champion, which is now in its 3.0 version. You can get those on Amazon.com or uh, that's probably the easiest place to find them. My last name is L-E-M-O-V. I also have a blog where, you know, I just post updates and things that I'm learning. I just posted a video yesterday of a basketball coach that I work with. And that's uh, teachlikeachampion.com uh, backslash blog. It's also called the Field Notes blog. So, And you can find me on Twitter if you're interested too at uh, Doug underscore Lamov. So I uh, hope people will be in touch. Fantastic. And for myself, if people are interested in pursuing a coaching journey and maybe you want to apply some of the stuff, best way to do it in the jujitsu world is to join BJJ Mental Models Premium. There's a ton of courseware on there, as well as, of course, the opportunity for me and the community to work directly with you on solving your problems. And we do use a lot of these techniques. So if you want to give it a shot, it's probably the best deal you'll find in the whole sport. You can do that at premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. One more time, that's premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. There's a free trial, money back guarantee. So give it a shot and let me know what you think. And if you don't want to do that, but you just want to kick me a few dollars to support us, you can do that on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. So two ways that you can help us out here. Doug, awesome to have you on here. Really appreciate you kind of helping provide some base level knowledge to coaches in our sport about what they should actually be doing. I think that everyone has always in our sport just done things the intuitive way that, you know, what their coach did, what makes sense to them. But there is a lot of science behind the best way to actually coach your your students and to grow the next generation. And I really appreciate you coming by here today and introducing those concepts to our audience. Thanks for having me on. It was an enjoyable conversation and uh, look forward to some time. Awesome. And of course, to everyone who listens, as always, thanks again for joining us this week. And I will talk to you guys next time.